Hey everybody, welcome to the seventh episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ Huff with Design the Everything, and I am here with Harrison from Precision Ingenuity. Good evening. How are we doing today? I'm doing all right. Um, let's see. What happened? Did we talk on the last episode about my fly problem? Uh, yes, yes. Something about flies that were trying to start their own machine shop and running off with tools and just generally the pesting you. <laughs> yeah. My fly problem was dealt with until today. I don't know what <laughs> happened, but for the most part, there's just like one or two flies buzzing around. And maybe it's because I wasn't in here at all yesterday. And I don't remember if I was in here much Saturday, but I came in today and this desk here was just covered in flies. So what's your temperature been like there? Because I know as it cools off, the, they kind of die down during the colder colder months. And that might be part of it, is my shop is like the one little bastion of warmth. Because it is starting okay. to get cold outside. Um, but my mini split, I found out, has a freeze protection mode. So it'll always okay. keep this room above 40 degrees. That's good. Uh, which is handy, especially since I have water in the laser. Mm-hmm. And, and technically, and in and, and your... Uh mill as well oh that's true with the coolant and i'm wondering if they're like seeking out the warm shop they could be that would make the most sense also does the coolant you're used smell like have any kind of a, a like a sugary smell to it at all because no. that would be another here's a question for you though and this is something i have not seen before my coolant is kind of turning blue interesting blue what, what, is that what, because uh, I ran brass and copper? Uh, yeah, it could be. I have had, when I've run, I, I haven't had anything turn blue or um, really blue, but I have had um, stuff kind of go a little bit greenish um, when running um, copper. Interesting. Because I, so. I ran brass something or others. So I don't remember what it was. I know yeah. that I have... Um, I have taken brass and I have dissolved it in because um, here probably six months ago, I had a, a 3D design project where um, a customer was trying to make it look like metal. And so I tried my hand at um, doing an electro coating on the 3D print. And oh, okay. whenever I dissolved the copper, it turned blue into a solution. Interesting. Okay. That makes sense, I suppose. So. Do you think it's a problem like do i need to change coolant or i would say provided you don't have any like actual um actual chips getting in there um it's probably not going to hurt anything um but i mean as a general rule of thumb i think most people try to change out their coolant at least once every six months to a year so kind of in that range um, and if you have any way to touch test the pH levels, um, that would be the other thing that would probably matter more than the color. Um, okay. Am I those are the four or seven or? Yeah, I think. Or you want to be? I think you want to be just a little bit uh, base, which is going to be what base is a higher number. So what, like an eight between seven and eight? Yeah, I think. Yes, that sounds right to me. Yeah. So I think you kind of, you want to be seven to eight ish, a little more base than acidic. Uh, and that's kind of your sweet spot. Okay. I can do that. So, what, what coolant do you run in your mill? So we changed coolants um, a, f a little while ago, and I don't remember the brand of it. It's uh, v Vasco, Vasco 700. Or something i'll need to go look at it um but it's kind of a vegetable based instead of petroleum based okay. coolant and um in the summer it smells bad if it gets hot really? yes and it smells like someone just ripped a big fart when you open the doors like if it gets hot and sits huh. um and it also because of it's a vegetable based um when the coolant dries or kind of uh, sits on surfaces for long periods, it separates out and you kind of get like a vegetable oil instead of a coolant. 
And it's kind of like this yellow sticky paste all over your flat surfaces. And so that's also very annoying. Uh, and it actually took the sticker off of our um, 1100MX, like that nice sticker on the inside, that big one. That whole thing came off because of the new coolant. So why so. are you using this? Um, because it was free. Okay. That's <laughs> um, valid. So there was a, I called, I didn't like the coolant that we were using, which was the quality chem, uh, 243. Is that what it is? 243? 251C is what most. 251C. That's what it is. 251C. Okay. Um, that's what it came with. And I didn't like it. But it turns out I don't think we were running it at the right coolant concentration because we didn't have the little eyeglass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but by the time we got the new eyeglass, we also got the new coolant because the guy um, that we got the coolant from, he gave us the first little bit as a demo and and gave us like a five-gallon jug to test out. And I think if we go back to buy more coolant, I want to switch it up. Um, but I'm going to use everything that I have before I switch over. And if you use it every day, it's not too bad. It's only, um, like when I use it, I have it in the mill and in the lathe. And in the lathe, it's not really that bad because we use the lathe a lot more. But the Tormach, because we don't use it nearly as much as we do the lathe now, um, it just smells bad and leaves all the surfaces kind of sticky and icky. Um, And I would prefer having a different coolant, at least in that one. For the for the for the lathe, it hasn't been that big of a deal. Like I haven't noticed anything, and, and and I don't have any dislikes for it. But for the for the mill, there's just so many more flat surfaces for it to kind of pool and. Okay, cat kill. <laughs> okay, I lost you. There's like so many other surfaces for it to pool and kind of um, separate out that I don't really like it for that. Did you know that Qualicam will give you a five gallon bucket too? If you start oh. talking to them. Yeah, I might need to. Um, Which on yeah. Tormach, Tormach lasts a really long time. Yeah, yeah. I use, so. gosh, I've maybe had a total of three gallons in my entire machining career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you uh, do you check it every time you fill it up with water? Like, does yours um, yes. kind of um, evaporate out and then you just check it every time you add water? Yep. Do you add a little bit of coolant every time? You add water, or do you just add straight water? Uh, whenever I'm adding coolant, I add one glop of coolant to it. If I'm adding water, I add a glop of coolant to the water, and then mix it, and then add that to the machine. So gotcha. I'm never adding straight water. Okay. I uh, do I, that for no other reason than Proteum Machining told me to. Uh, but yeah, supposedly it helps with mixing. That's what they all tell. I've don't do that. I what I'll do is I'll add water and um, well I'll check the mixture when it's low, and then I'll fill it up and check the mixture. And then um, on my last on my last dump, I might add a little bit in there to kind of balance it out wherever it's at. So, but as it as you lose water, your mixture goes up, yep. and so um, I just don't want to overdo it because when you go too high. At least what I've noticed is it, it, it kind of has uh, negative effects on that side. So okay. I try to I try to hit it. Right? Yeah, so I try I try to hit where when I'm at a hundred percent I'm on the low end, and then usually, especially on that um, on the Haas because the tank is just so much bigger. When I get down to about the fifty percent range, um, I've lost so much water that your coolant concentration is basically doubled at that point. And, and so like five to 10% is kind of that range I like to stick in. And if I go too much higher than 5% on the high end, then when I get down to about 50% on the low end, my concentration is basically doubled. And I think 10 to 12% is kind of considered the high end for that one of where you want to be. At least for the cool ideas, that's the same. Yeah. I've been using that, uh, the coolant blast ring thingy that goes around my spindle. And mm-hmm. I'm super happy with that, but it does mean that I do finally need to install chip filtering. Because yeah. I, I can tell that that is getting clogged up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a difference. It, 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 it helped us. It wasn't something that like you notice 
it, it's kind of like a, the slow boiling frog. Like as your chips kind of slowly clog up, you don't notice it right away. But when you clear it out and then use it, you're like, whoa, this is so much stronger. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I've definitely done that. Huh? You, oh, you do? I love that thing. You should definitely pick one up. It's so it, uh, quick and easy to install. Oh, nice. Does the, Have you noticed a difference on tool life or cutting forces or anything like that? Cutting forces, no. I have not worn out a um, feed mill that I use in the for the carabiner since then. Though mm-hmm. part of that may be better work holding. And just by looking at it cutting, chips are not in the way anymore. And sometimes with the old coolant system, they would be. Oh, okay. So what's what's your current count on carabiners um, now that you're... Have you got the, your large order in from Sincut Send or... Not yet. I placed that either late last week or right at the beginning of this week. Okay. The I was doing, I was tweaking the design a little bit. the The lockup wasn't quite right, and so I had to make the arm just a little bit longer. And so I, I, I made the arm longer, and I ordered ten prototypes, and they showed up, and I made them too long. And so then I had to do another batch of prototypes where I made them just a tiny bit shorter. And now they're perfect, but because, you know, you have to go through two rounds of ordering with Zencats in, like, that's, I don't know, two weeks or whatever. And so, like, I just got the the design proven out with the new blanks, and it's perfect. I went ahead and ordered my thousand, and they should be here, gosh, any day now. I haven't gotten the ship notification yet, but probably Wednesday or so, I would imagine they'd be delivered. Okay, that's exciting. That'll be a big order. You'll be busy after that for a while. And I've been proving out my pallets. I got both of them made. and Well, I tested one of them. I didn't test the other one, but they should be identical. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's gone really smoothly. Uh, I, don't know if you, I don't know if I've shared these yet. You, I haven't seen them. For the video viewers, I'm holding up my pallet. And awesome. it's worked That's really cool. well. How many's on there? I can't. I can't see your count. Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen carabiners. Runtime of around ninety minutes, if I remember right. Ninety minutes may have been for fourteen, so it might be a little bit longer than that. But. That's awesome. So, and that looks like it's smaller than the work area. So it looks like you still have a lot more room because my pallets, I feel like, were bigger than that that I was using for my boxes. I. I think I bought this size pallet because Saunders Machine Works was out of their larger one. Okay. But yeah, I should have gotten the larger pallet. That was okay. I, that was a mistake that I just didn't even think about. I was like, oh, I'm just gonna get this one because the other one's not there. Mm-hmm. But so okay, so they do got. make they they do make a bigger one then. Yes. Okay. I made my own from one, scratch, so. <laughs> oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, this one fills most of the work area on the machine. Okay. So not yeah. all of it. Um, in fact, I can barely squeak in a mod vice if I needed to make a small part. Okay. Um, yeah. Which which is nice. How did those... Do those have dowel pins and then bolts that you lock them down with? Or Yeah, it has one round dowel pin, one diamond pin, and then four bolts. Okay. And do you... Do you work on I guess you're going to be working on one, vi- one uh, pallet while outside the machine and then just swap them out and then Hit go. Yep. That's the plan. Nice. So nice. I guess I haven't actually tried that workflow yet because I've only been playing with the one pallet. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm going to be making like a pallet loading station because I mm-hmm. now have like two different UV lights that I need to position correctly to be able to cure the pallet. Um, I got a second one so we can keep the lights pretty close, meaning high intensity, and cover the whole thing. That'd so, be good. Hopefully, going to build that little loading station soon here, um, and put like some Kaizen foam on it with my the tools that I need to load and unload it. Noise. Hmm. So what have I you been up to? Oh man, so this is kind of a dead week. Um, oh really? After your busy week? Yeah, we've kind of caught up on everything now. And it's it's a dead week in the sense that we don't have anything that's like urgent or pressing. But if you look, we have a. We have a strip of 
um, uh, dry erase board material on our uh, Tormach, actually on the opposite side of the logo. And we can kind of keep a to-do list and we can just Sharpie on it all the time, which I highly recommend, by the way. If you are trying to keep up with stuff, it's great for keeping track of things. Um, and it's probably like an 11 by 17 size and it's just full top to bottoms of stuff that is kind of like in process stuff that we're waiting on answers for uh waiting on material um projects for other people that they um want us to get them quotes on and so we have a lot of like our list is massive but it feels like there's nothing going on because we don't have any jobs that are actively running in either machine right now and so it doesn't really feel like we're making any money because nothing's actually no no tools are actually running or really scheduled to run this week, and that's nerve wracking a little bit. So, <laughs> you still got your air compressor running? <laughs> that's funny. So um, last week, I don't know if you remember, but we were talking about that before the setup, and I was like, "You should go turn off your air compressor so it doesn't <laughs> turn on." <laughs> Well, I haven't been running anything, and so it hasn't run the entire time I've been in here. That doesn't uh, matter. But it's some <laughs> slow week, yeah. <laughs> the air compressor is pro. I, I I promise you, there's some. If we're going into conspiracy theory, there's some sort of microchip in all air compressors <laughs> that they come on at the worst moment when you get a phone call and you just answer it. When you're trying to tell important information. <laughs> When you're trying to run a job and you're trying to listen to the cut for the first time, yep. that's when they always come on. They always come on when you need to listen to something or hear something <laughs> or tell someone something. It is just, that's just how they work. Alexa activated air compressors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. do you have any plans to like move it outside your shop and or build it in like an enclosure around it to help that? Yeah, so the plan is to add a little lean-to to the side of my uh, shop here and probably just do like a gravel floor except where the air compressor is. And mm -hmm. that'll mostly be for like garden stuff storage. Like my wife can park her wheelbarrow and tools in there. Mm -hmm. But also build a separate separate little room for the air compressor. Yeah. Will you leave it on at all at, at that point or will you just go turn it on and off? Uh, if I had... I need to go through and make sure that the whole system is better sealed because I definitely have some leaks. Yeah. And if it was sealed well enough, I would otherwise I'll turn it off just so it's not running all the time. Yeah. What what I what we do is we just have a, a manual valve that we close that's like right next to the air tank. Mm -hmm. And that seems to like as long as because then you can just have a shorter run that's guaranteed to be sealed and you can close that off. And then if your rest of your run is leaky a little bit, then it's not as big a deal. When I say turn off the air compressor, that's what I mean is I turn off the, the disconnect between the air compressor and the rest. Of the, oh, okay. The okay. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I almost never actually flip the switch on the compressor itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, let's see here. What else this week is, um, the, the testicle festival. So, oh, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of turned into an impromptu gun show. Um, talking to some people yeah, who know. Testicle festival. <laughs> yeah. And so they aren't allowing anyone to sell anything cause it's not a, it's not set up as a gun show, uh -huh. but there's a lot of people that are going to be bringing guns for display and, for us, that's perfect because we don't really sell at gun shows. Our whole deal is, our whole deal is that we're selling services, so um, we're looking forward to that. And we actually have become started to become dealers with some of these other gun shops. Oh, really? Uh huh. And there's one in Missouri that's like an hour, hour and a half north of us, and they're called uh, Black Rain. Um. And they have some really cool ARs. And so we just bought a, um, an AR that is Cerakoted like an American flag. And, it, okay. and we're going to have that as a display model there as kind of eye-catching candy to bring people in. Because it'll be big. It'll be on one of our, um, on one of our AR-15 stands. 
and I think it'll just kind of stand out. So we'll have that, the laser, and we have a bunch of other stuff that we're trying to get ready um, that's kind of gun-related and Tumblr-related. So we bought some Tumblrs as well that we're going to be able to laser engrave for people. So we'll, okay. people can bring their own Tumblrs, and we're going to have a, a handful of them to sell as well that we'll engrave. So... So tell me about being a dealer for these places. Like, what does that mean? So maybe dealer's not right. A distributor might be a better way okay. to look. I don't know. Um, the difference between the distributor and the dealer. Basically, we just get discounted pricing. Um, and then they have MSRPs. And so when we sell their guns, they have a suggested MRP um, that they want you to try to sell it for. And there's a little bit of profit margin in there. Um, not a lot for us because we're not trying to do that. But what that does allow us to do is to, it allows us to buy basic guns at a cheaper price and um, do a little work to them and sell them as a completed gun rather than um, working on other people's guns uh, from scratch. And so I think that, that I think is what we're going to try to do. And we're going to try to do like themed guns. So we buy a, buy a basic gun, go through it, um, and do our work to it, and then resell it as a souped-up gun, kind of. Um, and I think there's a lot more people that are interested in that versus, hey, I have this gun. I want you to do a couple hundred dollars worth of work to it. People are more willing to buy a gun for... Um, $800 than they are to buy a gun for $600 and have $200 worth of work to, done to it. Yep. So. <laughs> so what, what was the process like to get set up as a distributor? Was it just like send them an email? Hey, like, can we buy stuff or. I honestly don't know because my partner has been taking care of all that. All I know is he's been sending out a ton of emails and filling out a ton of forms online. Um, you have to tell them we have, you have to be an FFL. And so we have to share all of our business information with them to get certified. A lot of them want pictures of the facility that you're in so they can really? verify what. Yeah. So like some of them we won't get because they want storefronts. Um, so like I'd really like to get Smith and Wesson and Glock. Um, those are two big names, but those, you know, they want you to guarantee that you're going to sell, um, you know, like five guns a week or, or oh. so many guns a month. And and you're buying them whether or not you sell them or not kind of a deal. And so it's like, okay, we got to be a lot bigger before we can do that. Um, but some of the smaller ones like Black Rain and um, I think DPMS is another one. Um, those guys, we can uh, – we're working on the process of going through and, and becoming um, dealers, distributors. I'm not sure what you want to call it, but it's basically a, a – the ability to get them at a, at a discounted price so that we can resell them to other people. So, uh, Obviously, don't say anything if you're not allowed to say anything, but do you know how much of a discount you get on average? It, it varies. Um, I'd say on the low end, um, 10%. And on the high end, on like cheaper items, like, like bare basic parts, um, the most I've seen is 50%, but that's, that's pretty rare. Um, you're probably sitting closer in that 20 ish percent range. Um, and so, you know, if you're selling something for a thousand dollars, 20%, um, you know, it, it adds up, but we're not a gun stop shop and we're not moving that many guns. So we, we want to have a, a higher margin than that and 200 honestly when you get up to that those higher prices they're not taken off that much um you, you only see the higher margins on the the smaller stuff like the stuff that's you know it's it's kind of a little bit backwards of what you'd yeah. think um but i think it's just because the parts um they get they can get them and and they're almost reselling them to us and so they have a higher margin in them Versus the stuff that they're actually making in-house, they want to have more of that meat on their end. So I think that's how it kind of works. Because um, stuff like uh, mags and some other stuff, there's, I don't know, they just, they seem to take a little more off of the generic stuff than their name brand stuff, which makes sense. 
have you done any like custom magazines and stuff then? Especially if it's we're, higher margin for you. We're looking at getting some magazines to uh, have laser engraved at the gun show because that's something we can sell. Okay. So we'll have those there. Yeah, because what's an average cost retail for a magazine? Um, custom engraved magazines range from um, 20 to $40, I think, kind of. And so that's so, right there in that perfect impulse buyable range. Mm-hmm. And also, you don't have any, like, like you can sell those in most places. Like, it's not like selling a firearm. At least I assume this is how it works. Yeah. Yeah. There is there is no, uh, nothing that we have to worry about with those. And the tumblers are kind of that same thing. We're trying to, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that everything sells as well as, halfway as well as I think it is. Because um, we really don't have a whole lot of product, but there's a lot of money you got to spend like when you start building up inventory for stuff like this. Oh yeah. (laughs) But this is such a big event that I want to go there and I want to make sure that I can capture as much of it as I can. So, because they've been, they've been advertising this event for about a year now. Um, So, and if it becomes a big thing every year, that'll be nice. Um, Because I want to try to make it to, Maybe not every month, but maybe once every three months, I'd like to go to a, a big gun show of some sort and try to get our name out there more. Um, so, Would you just stay to local ones or would you travel for them? Uh, probably the furthest I'd go would be a couple hours unless, um, unless it was something more specialized. Like I would love to come up where you're at and do the um, playing card cases. Um and see, that would be like a more specialized or like um, Las Vegas for like the knife show, the big knife show that they do. We don't really do any knife stuff right now. Um, but, you know, if there was a big event like that, it'd be good. And Oklahoma, about an hour and a half, two hours from here, they have one of the largest gun shows um, in the U.S. over there. So that's pretty close. So I like to make it there. All right, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you handle not like let's see, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Over this last week, I basically had like five days in a row where I could focus on designing everything. Mm-hmm. My time wasn't really uh, dictated or mediated by anything outside. I'm used mm-hmm. to working where I would you know go to work at my day job and then come home and then I would have, you know, X amount of hours before I have to go to dinner or help the kids get in bed. And Mm -hmm. like that really helped regiment me Mm -hmm. over this last week. I like that all kind of went out the window. Mm -hmm. Uh, And instead of my normal, like wake up fairly early ish and then, you know, work until the evening schedule, I basically ended up waking, waking up late, waking up at like nine and then, well, eight or nine, and then working until like 11 or 12, uh, which is much less suboptimal for me. Yeah. Uh, and then also I just had a hard time like really narrowing down and like focusing on or figuring out on what I needed to focus on. So like, how do you handle, how do you handle your daily routine? How do you handle your like goal scheduling? Not like your, you know, what do I put on the machine when, but your what do I need to focus on now? So me and my partner try to have a meeting about once every week or two. Um, and depends on how distracted we get or how, like if we, if either one of us feels like, Hey, stuff isn't getting done at the rate we need to get done. We'll regroup and just kind of talk about it. Sorry. This cat is just biting me like crazy. So, uh, anyway, swatting flies over here. So, yeah. Well, this cat knows better, and he's literally biting my arm and leaving bite marks on it. Um, yes, I do. I had a spray bottle, which is what I used to use, but I don't know where it's ended up. Um, anyways, um, I'm probably kind of like you in the sense that, um. I had to work such long, crazy hours that as soon as I quit my 
my day job and started doing this, I was in the shop at like eight or nine and then I would work later till like seven or eight in the evenings. Um, and I was just happy. Um, and right now we're trying to be in there around seven thirty. One of us is usually trying to be in there around seven thirty and to four thirty. Um, and I guess if you're doing it solo, it, try to figure out why you need to be there in the morning. Cause I always figured out that if I know, Hey, I need to be there in the morning to do X, Y, or Z. That's a lot easier for me to get up rather than trying to stick to a schedule. If I, Hey, if I go, Hey, I need to get to the shop so I can start something. And I have an idea of what that is going to start. It's a lot easier for me to get out of bed in the morning. If I go, Hey, I, you know, I have something that needs to get done by the end of the month. Um, it's a lot easier for me to sleep in until eight or nine in the morning um, because it's like, oh, I have so much time. And so I don't feel the pressure and it's a lot easier to just sleep it in. Um, and, you know, I, you know, like I said earlier, we have that um, dry erase sheet on our, on our um, Tormach. And so we always try to write that up and we try to put due dates beside everything when we want to have stuff done. And we try to prioritize it top to bottom as most important to least important. And we just try to use that as kind of a, as a global to-do list that we're not following it religiously, but if we ever get to a point where we feel like we're not being, um, where we feel like we're not doing anything productive, we'll go look at that list and try to reprioritize whatever we're working on. That makes sense. Um, I mean, I, I had keep to-do lists in my notebook and I basically every time that to-do list starts to be crowded, I just go through and I rewrite it because I'll, I'll write things on there and then cross them off and eventually it gets yeah. messy. And then, you know, once a day or every couple of days, I'll go through and rewrite a new list and kind yeah. of reconsider everything on there. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't do as well for multi-part and long-term things for me like like for example this next kickstarter that i'm going to be working on mm-hmm. it, you know i can break down some of that into parts but it doesn't do as good of a job of a longer term plan for it yeah um yeah that's a good question i honestly this is not my area of expertise i am as as a Person, I am not super organized 90% of the time. I can go through and be extremely organized about once or twice a month and figure all that stuff out. And at my old day job, they tried using a variety of scheduling tools to try to help keep track with that kind of stuff. Um, The best and worst one, um, best because I feel like it was a pretty useful and worse than the fact of how they actually used it um, was a website called monday.com and I think they have some free stuff on there that you could use and then they have paid stuff I don't remember all the details Um, but it did a pretty good job of setting up buckets of things to do and goals and timelines and it was pretty easy to use and it was great for lots of people for a single person i don't know it might be a bit overkill um but um for me personally i've always like i like having a list on a dry erase board that i can see um it kind of goes back to my days in university where i used to always do all my math problems and and engineering problems on a whiteboard i just like being able to see everything um somewhere posted somewhere and a whiteboard is the easiest thing and we would typically about once a month or twice a month we'll go through and just wipe everything off the whiteboard and just rewrite everything but it's nice because you can kind of strike things off and you can just clear them off line by line and you can write something else in there in the space that's left behind. And so it's, it's almost always like ever changing, but it just, is always right there. And we actually have three of them. We have, um, we have current projects, um, short-term, um, needs and long-term needs. Okay. And so, 
Um, our current list is like, hey, these are things that we need to prioritize that we're actually doing. Our short-term list is, hey, we got a job. We need to order a uh, an end mill or we need to order a table in the next few months for, for this or a cart or um, a shelf or uh, packing material or whatever. It's smaller-ish items that we can kind of group together and kind of whenever we get a chunk of cash, we'll go through that list and kind of figure out what we want to do. And then our longer-term list is stuff like um, like a, a bar feeder, a new call-it systems, um, uh, um, parts catcher, um, conveyor for the, the lathe, bigger ticket items that we can try to plan and try to be like, okay, what, what can we do to kind of get one of those in the next – uh, six months to a year or whatever, or three months to six months. It kind of depends. And we, we'll price it out and figure out, you know, okay, well, um, what's going to be the biggest benefit for us if we were to, you know, spend $5,000, which one of these items would be make the most sense and, and give us the biggest return on investment. And so we kind of have those three lists going at any one point in the shop and we can quickly look at them. And those also kind of help us focus on different things. Well, maybe I'll get some whiteboards in here. I have plenty of wall space around. We didn't actually get whiteboards. We got the sticky back stuff. Um, okay. And, and so, because um, we don't really have any space to stick. I would I would recommend a whiteboard if you can fit one. But um, we just got the sticky back space because we don't have anything. We just stuck it. So we have, we have one on the mill, one on the lathe, and then two on our desks. So... And we also yeah. use it like when we also use it when we're running our mill or our mill or our lathe to keep track of our parts. So like we'll put how many parts we ran each day as we're going through the job to kind of track it and see how efficient we were. Like oh we on you know on one day we ran 150, but the next day we ran 75. What happened? Um, you know I just it- write right on my mill for that. I have a dry erase marker that's hanging there on a front mm-hmm. pop keychain, and I just write mm-hmm. straight on the mill. Yeah, but it's a little bit harder to read. I also have an acrylic piece of acrylic that I put up here on the jail cell mm-hmm. and to with the idea of using it as a whiteboard. But again, that was too hard to read because there was a clear going through to another room. Mm-hmm. So I'll try that in the past at, at my day job. I use sticky notes like heavily to organize things. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a board that was based on a, a scrum board. If you're familiar with that, um, where sticky notes would basically move through different stages. And that worked yeah. really well for me until, until basically my boss co-opted. It became it became organization system for my boss and not my organization system anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I always I, had sticky notes at the bottom of my monitors. It was yeah. just all across the bottom. <laughs> so my coworkers did not appreciate it. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll get whiteboards and sticky notes and kind of do a hybrid yeah. system. Yeah, it's a lot harder. It's 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 a lot better that I have two people in there and it's not just me because I have someone that if they see that I'm slacking or falling behind or something or vice versa, we can kind of like bump each other on the shoulder and be like, all right, what are you working on right now? Like, what's going on? Like, you know, can I do anything to help you? Like this, that and the other. And yeah, it makes communication and scheduling more difficult, but it also forces you to think about it. And my problem is I have not been forced to think about it until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't have a plan, then time will go and nothing will happen. Period. Yes. Um, that's just, that's just um, life. Um, what do they call it? Like entropy? Like everything will just kind of go down to the... Yeah. <laughs> to kind of dissolve out or find a point of equilibrium. I think, I think figuring that out is going to be kind of my, the big thing that I need to work on over the next month or so. Yeah. Just getting myself organized. And, and I, I wouldn't try to focus on one thing I would recommend is try to figure out what works for you. You know, if you want to sleep in and then work later, if that's more your style, I would, I would say don't try to hold normal hours if you don't have to and if you if it doesn't benefit you in some way. 
right now it benefits us holding the earlier hours because I'm teaching in the evenings and doing stuff like this podcast in the evenings and um, other stuff. And so I'm trying to get in early so that I can have more time in the in the evenings. Um, but if I didn't have the evening stuff, I would probably be coming in at uh, eight or nine because I just I feel happier. I just um, I feel a little more rested and um, I can focus better on some of those. So I, I either like coming in like really, really early or a little bit later that that I don't know what it is about that seven o'clock time, but it feels like it's just late enough that um, I'd like to, I would have liked to have come in earlier or um, slept in a little bit longer, come in a little bit later. Yeah. So, but that's what I'm doing right now to, cause it, it just, it makes the most sense with my current schedule. Yeah. I, my wife is very much a, uh, a night owl and that's kind of what skews my, my timeline. But the problem is I am not, and I get much, much, much more done in the morning. And so, you know, I may be working on something. I may have my laptop open and have, you know, Fusion running at 11 o'clock. But, mm. you know, an hour of that is a half an hour in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I am. That's the rationale to change it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that's that's an area that I need to work better at myself as well. Um but it helps having someone else there that can straighten you out from time to time. Yep. So, um, do you, do you have any current scheduling ideas? Like, do you know what your next week or two is going to look like? Or do you just kind of like, how do you, how do you plan your week out? Um, Lately, it's kind of been, I've been ordering things and then doing them when they come in. Okay. <laughs> Which is maybe not the best plan in the world, especially because, like, basically I was waiting on stuff to come in from other vendors uh, until, like, Wednesday of this past week. Mm-hmm. And then everything came in on Wednesday. And now I have, like, you know, five different routes that's all just, like, AJ time constrained. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. the answer is I don't. Yeah. It's, it, you kind of just go at whatever pace stuff comes in at, more or less. Gotcha. And just as fast as I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I have found that if I just do things and I don't write down when I think I can get them done, I, I'm either way overshooting or way undershooting the timelines that I – and mentally thinking about like sometimes I'll write something down. Oh, I can get that done next week. And I, I write it down as a due next week and next week comes. And I'm just like, what was I thinking? This is taking so much longer. And then other times I've been like, Oh, I'll write it down. I'll write it. I'll get to it. Eventually I'll write it down. And then I, and I, I didn't write it down. And it's like, wow, someone asked me about that like a month or two ago and I haven't done anything on it. Like I really needed to write that on the board. So I didn't forget it because it's just not getting done. It's like this tape measure white labeling project I'm working on right now. I was supposed to get started on this a long time ago, but like basically the goal is to get these done for, so this guy, well, there's a couple of reasons I'm doing it. It's a long story, but the, the guy who initiated the project, he wanted some to be able to give to friends and family at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's really the only thing that's dictating my timeline, other than I want to do a Kickstarter for them in January. And, like, I knew about this project in, like, July and just kept pushing it off and pushing it off. And he finally sent me a message. It was like, hey, are you going to work on this? And, you know, now I'm actually making progress for it. There, it's going to hopefully be my Patreon of the month or prototype of the month for my Patreon's reward member this month. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that I can get them to him before Christmas and then do the Kickstarter for him. And hopefully some other people will, will want to white label them too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be cool. Have you, have you come up with your design for it yet? I know we talked a little bit about it. The design is done and tested in, in plastic. I have not yet tested it in, in metal. And I'll hopefully be doing that sometime this week because I really need to get those tape measures out the door soon. 
There's only yeah. so much time left in the month for my prototype of the month, but... Oh, did I? There was two big things that I don't know if I've mentioned yet. Okay. Did I tell you about gears? About machining no. gears? Okay. You have not. Okay, so... There is a big company in the area, and I don't know if we're going to do it, but um, they sent us a request for quote um, for some gears because we told them, like, we don't do gears currently, but I would invest in the equipment needed to make them if it made sense. And he sent us items to quote, and the quote came out to more than we've made in one year. Okay. So, big quote. And so, we're waiting to hear back. So, we might be getting into the gear making business because he has a guy that he's been using for many, many years who got sick or hurt and has been out. And so, they've been kind of trying to find someone else to fill it. And uh, they want to find someone local. And we're local. And there's not really any other places around here that do gears to the best of my knowledge. Um and so I'm kind of hoping, and that's not even really like, that's what they're hurting for right now, but they have a lot of other parts that we might also potentially do. Um, what, so. what size of gears are we talking about? Um, two inches to six inches. Okay. Would you do them on your mill or would you get a, is it a gear hob? Is that the tool? Yeah, gear hobbing is what it is. And it would depend on quantity and um if it's necessary my original plan is fourth axis on the tormach to start so turn all the critical id od features on the lathe the lathe can actually broach as well yeah so broach the keyholes then use the fourth axis to in a arbor to um and a cutter to cut the gear profile and then any tapped holes or slots or anything that I need to do, lay it down flat and do those. So it would be like a three to four op gear, um, okay. depending on complexity. Um, and some of them are really simple. Some of them are complicated with like inserts and things. And I'm not even sure how we're going to be able to do some of them, honestly. Um, but we'll cross that bridge when it comes. So, and I would love to have an excuse to get more toys to dedicate to something like yeah. this. Um, because I do feel like there's more work in the air. Like I, like gear, gear hobbing and gear making is just such a niche thing that it's, it's something that I could do that would differentiate, even though I keep taking on things and keep yes. going the opposite direction of specializing. But <laughs> anytime I, I see an opportunity like this, I just want to jump on it. Um, and then the other thing was um, I had to take my wife's car in for an oil change. And I used that opportunity to go to one of the bigger towns around here because um, the dealership that she got her car from is over there. And that's where we have to take it to get an oil change. And I stopped in at a bunch of shops and at every place that I stopped, um, well, I'd stopped there previously in the past, but every time I stopped, this time I walked away with um, people wanting to send stuff our way. They just weren't sure when. Um, and, and I got a couple things that I'm looking into for some of those people. One of them, one of which I'm going to try to do vacuum formed parts for. Um, I'm okay. not going to make, I'm going to try to outsource them, um, which if you know anyone who would like to look at outsourcing vacuum formed parts, I had some family up in Michigan who used to do that, but they sold that business to someone else. But um, basically it's a cover for a screen on some industrial equipment. And so I want to vacuum because they, they wanted me to machine it out of like clear plastic and be able to see through it. I'm like, eh. I was like, if I can just vacuum form that, it's going to be cheaper. You can buy thinner material and then I can just bolt on the hinges and make the hinges for it to kind of flip up and down for what they're wanting it to do. Um, and and I don't think it needs to be injection molded. Vacuum formed would be perfect, I think, for this type of application. Um, would so. you like vacuum form it and then stick it on your mill to clean up the edges? Or 
it depends on who I find that can do it. Whoever does it, if they can, if they can cut it out and give me my perfect part, um, or if they want to give it to me not cut out, then I can cut it out on the mill. Um, I'll have to cut some screw holes and some other features into it, and it's going to be one of those things like, you know, if, if I give you this part and you want to vacuum form it, and you want to cut all that stuff into it, and you have the abilities and are set up for it, great. If not, I'll do it. Um, so I got to get quoting right now. Um, and so I'm trying to do it for a, a low dollar value because if I can get it cheap, um, it's one of those things where all of the Tyson plants around here have these kind of screens on all of their uh, equipment. And right now they just have a piece of sheet metal blocking off the screens. And when they spray everything down, um, it damages them over time. And so they just want something better to, to block it. And there's a lot of Tyson plants. So <laughs> if I could make it cheap enough, it could become like a commodity item where, you know, they want to order a couple hundred at a time type deal. I don't know anyone off the top of my head who would do vacuum forming as a, a service. I know uh, Henry Holsters is nearby and they do a lot of vacuum forming. And I don't know, they, I don't, I don't think he has enough time, though, to take on other work. I think he's pretty swamped with his own business. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's another person. I've done, I've done vacuum forming before. I'm a little homemade vacuum former, but. I thought about making one. Like, I was like, man, dude, like, I could make one. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be something that, you know, I'd like to bring in-house. But I need to do a better job of outsourcing things because I have a lot of. Huh? I said, don't make a vacuum former. Don't do this one yourself. Um, like I need to do a better job of outsourcing different things to augment our abilities. Um, and I think I've done an okay job of that. I'm, I'm trying to do more of it um, just because it's nice. Cause it can be hands off handed up to someone else. And like, I'm giving someone a final product and I've, I've done, you know, 80% of the work, but there's a few odds and ends that I had to, buy or outsource and I'm trying to do a better job at that. Cause that's how everyone else does it. Like, yeah. like everyone, like most of these places around here that do big contract jobs, they don't do everything in house. They outsource so much stuff. Like they're like, their customer doesn't care. Um, but on some stuff, it does make sense to, to do in house. Like I've had kind of had in the back of my brain, um, a tubing, a CNC tubing bender and tubing cutter. Those are two things that I've had come up for a couple jobs and I cannot find anyone. I have messaged, I have contacted, I have done all this stuff and I cannot find anyone around here that does any of that kind of stuff. Um, or if they do, it's insanely high pricing. And so that's something else that if I ever had more space in a bigger shop and kind of expanded, I think that would be some other, some equipment that I would be interested in investing in. Um, if I continue doing this type of work, because I think there's a lot of it in the area that would benefit from it. Yeah. With my day job, the one of the things that that company could do that nobody else could, at least in house, was cutting tube. And you know, we're make, they made um, checkout stand equipment, so like the thing that holds up credit card readers or monitors, mm -hmm. and like a lot mm -hmm. of that is tube. But none of none of their competitors could cut tube in house. Yeah, And so they tended to not use it as much. And this is kind of changing now. Well, I mean, still nobody does it in-house anymore. They, they outsource it all. But now they're starting to get, you know, tube in there. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where just having a piece of equipment gives you the advantage and you can do things that nobody else can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I've thought of some product stuff that would use tubing. And it's like, man, if I had the ability to bend and cut tubing however I wanted. Um, there are certain products that would benefit greatly from that and um, would be really cool to do. So, And then I, I know there's a lot of places around here that could also benefit um, from, like, my old job, for an example, um, they did these big tanks and they have... Um, a lot of tubing to kind of support them. And in these tanks, they had um, on the largest one, they had um, 
16 or 20 sections of tube that were all stacked up on each other. Um, and their in-house saw guy was plus or minus a 16th on a good day. Yep. And when you do plus or minus a 16th over 20 pieces, um, I mean, you're over an inch, plus or minus an inch for your total frame length um, by the time they get it all welded together. Yep. And um, when you're laser engraving... Um, like we were laser engraving or laser marking um, the points where the bead welds needed to go to like, we would, we would mark out all of the different places where um, they need to put like a one inch weld to the tube. And uh-huh. as you're going down the line, those marks are getting further and further off one way or the other because the tubes are all cut to the wrong length. I mean, they're close, but over that long length, not so much. And so they tried to outsource that to get them cut on the laser on the laser tube cutter and they can do some other cool things like tab and slot to have them all kind of interlocked together. Um, and they loved it. It just more than doubled the price of the frame um, just from doing that. And it was one of those things where it's like, man, I don't know if it's like they, they were seriously questioning. Like it's, it's so beneficial on the manufacturing side, but is it twice the cost beneficial? It's like, are we reaping those rewards or is it better to have a guy with a grinder kind of hand fitting each one of these and trying to make sure that they're all good after they've been cut. Yep. So. So I have one more thing that I've been looking into this week. One of, one of the things I like doing in my products is I guess the opposite of mass producing. I like to be able to make a large quantity of products that are all unique from each other. Mm-hmm. And the, the carabiners are not this. The carabiners are, you know, mass produced. I'm offering a bunch of colors, but that's really the only customization you get. But like when you go, if you look at the pry bars where you could type in, you know, the dimensions of your, of your pry bar and then get a, a pry bar in hand. Or I did some uh, whiskey cubes slash fidget cho- toys. I made some out of aluminum that were fidget toys and some out of stainless that were whiskey cubes where I had a, a randomized spiral pattern on each face of it. Mm-hmm. And I just really like to be able to do that kind of thing. And it's because like, I can do that because I'm a small shop. If I was Mm -hmm. like some company in China cannot do this, there's no way that they could scale it. Mm -hmm. And like, I just want to do more and more of that and add more and more of it into my products. Mm -hmm. And I, so this week I, I've started really looking into uh, generative art and the ability to generate unique patterns uh, and then either engrave them or make them a part of a product. And I think that's what I'm going to do for the Make 100 tape measures. I think every tape measure is going to be unique and randomly generated, at least in terms of a engraving on the side. That'd be cool. Um, and that, and like what, that kind of it brings up an interesting idea. Um, so here recently we've had, uh, we had a friend who, um, saw all of our laser engravings and, and have you seen guys who have laser engraved, uh, Damascus steel patterns onto things Yes. to kind of give them that Damascus look without actually being Damascus? Yeah. It'd be cool to come up with like a generator to where every time you did one of those patterns, they were all unique, just like Damascus. So that's another, that's, that's something. I mean, that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. In fact, one of the there's I watched a video that basically went through like the concept of how people are are writing programs to be able to generate this art because there's people doing it. Like I'm not going to be doing anything that's completely novel, mm-hmm. except I've never actually seen anyone do this with CNC machining. Um, but basically, one of the one of the methods of generating art is you let's say you start with a line. And, you know, your first one's a line. And then you randomly distort that a little bit and copy it up. And then you take that same line and you randomly distort it even more and copy it up above that. And you basically just stack them all up until you have a whole page of them. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, you know, you'll just have a straight line. But then as you work your way up, it'll be more and more and more distorted, you know, depending on however the randomness chooses. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if that's conveyable in the podcast, like if that'll make sense to people listening, but it basically looks like a Damascus steel kind of pattern. So that wouldn't yeah. be hard to do. Um, my plan is to write a, um, a fusion plugin to do this for me. This may be a little optimistic. I have some experience with fusion plugins. Uh, that's how I did the, the whiskey cubes and to some extent the pry bars but those were mostly just changing existing parameters that already existed inside my model. Like it could just change mm -hmm. the dimension. Uh, this would be drawing new artwork or new shapes. And I've never done any of that before. Yeah. It's interesting. And I'm, I'm just always looking like my goal is to find things that other people can't do. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm always looking to as well, is trying to find something that no one else can do. And it's, it's not so much, it, it, you know, one of my favorite things to do is not invent anything new, but learn about other fields and then apply them in a way that no one has thought of to something else. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm really really enjoy doing that like i love watching something in like the medical field where they come up with this special knife to do surgery or something and then being like oh man that's really cool is there anything you could do with that for like a pocket knife type thing um or there was one there was one i was looking at a while ago um what, what was it i had a problem i was trying to solve and there was a perfect solution for another from another industry and it was like i was going to buy the tool and adapt it for my needs um and modify it to make it work um i can't remember what it was but i think it was for a customer i don't remember all the details it's been a while since i did it but it didn't end up working out where i didn't end up getting it but that's one of the things i love is like the, the more you know the more you can just pull from kind of information across industry and make something that's um, similar to something else, but used in a way no one else has thought about. Yeah. Well, it's even like there, someone told me about this. I don't remember, or like I heard it on the podcast. It's like a, a creativity exercise that like they'll do in like product design school or whatever, where basically you, you open up a book or a dictionary and you, you know, just randomly choose one thing on the page. Mm -hmm. And you open it up, you know, to some other page and you choose something on that page. And then you like make something that has to do with those two words. And like it kind yeah. of teaches you how to, you know, be creative. And actually, let me, re let me rephrase that better. The better way would be you have a product in mind. Like, let's say you're going to make a knife. So, you know, you're going to make a knife. You open up a dictionary, you choose a random word and it's like a uh, cup. And you're like, okay, what can I do with a cup knife? What does a cup knife do? What does it what does it look like? Is the is the blade cup? What can I do with a cup shaped blade? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you can knife? go a lot of Yeah. Yeah, you can go a lot of ways with that. Is is it built into the cup? Is it a cup handle that turns into a knife? Is it Yeah, like you said, a cup knife. That's another good example. Yeah, there's I, I do enjoy those types of exercises because they they do help you in the long run. And if you're, you know, if you're trying to come up with a new knife, like, you know, you draw 20 silly designs in five minutes from using this method. And then when you start, you know, like that may spark an idea for a serious attempt at a knife. Yeah. But it's really basically the same thing as, well, it's not the same thing. It is a similar idea to, you know, take a problem or take an idea and go, okay, what would they do in the medical industry? What would they do in the scientific industry like you know it's yeah on that okay. note uh should we wrap it up yeah yeah i don't got anything else going on um hopefully this weekend goes good with the uh stuff coming up so but at some point here i'll be neck deep in carabiners mm-hmm yep so 
Um, and I'm just I'm I'm hoping that this is the calm before the storm. I'm hoping there's a lot of stuff coming down the line, and it's just because um, I've, I've I have a lot of people that have said things that I really like, um, but nothing has hit yet. And I guess my biggest fear is that it all hits at the exact same time. <laughs> that, that seems to be tradition. Yeah, it's it's like a a big tidal wave of stuff, and it's like ah. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll take us out. Okay. So, uh, for those of you who have, uh, held on, we, uh, thank you. Um, this is Harrison with, uh, precision ingenuity, precision ingenuity, um, here with AJ from design the everything, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.